Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. I want you to think about a, a question. I always love opening up my sermons with a question. It gets everybody thinking. Here's the question. Do you think we, as 21st century Americans, are living in exile? Do you think that we, as 21st century American Christians, are living in exile? You could answer yes, you could answer no, you could answer maybe. A lot of it depends on how you're going to define exile. But regardless of how you answer, it sure feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? I turned 35 this week, and one of the things I've been noticing with each passing year, um, as things get darker in our society and and more difficult, um, I've I've noticed that I feel more and more like an exile, like a stranger in a foreign land, like an outsider as a Christian. And I know I'm not the only one. Many of you can think back to the good old days when American values and morals were more aligned with uh, biblical principles. Uh, society no longer speaks your language, though. Society no longer believes in your God. They no longer share your values. So maybe you too feel like an exile, an outsider, a foreigner in a strange land. See, here's the thing, though. We may have only recently started a feeling this way. Uh, it may have been maybe in the last couple decades when you started feeling like an exile, but the reality is this. See, the moment we said yes to Jesus, we became exiles. See, it's not the political climate, not the moral climate, not the social climate in America that makes us exiles. Now, certainly these things will remind us that we're living in exile, but they in and of themselves are not what makes us exile. See, in the, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter reminds us that we are sojourners and exiles on this earth. So these are statements of identity to, to believers, to children of God. So what makes us exiles is the fact that our identity has so radically changed that we're no longer at home in our country of birth. What makes us exiles is the fact that we are citizens of heaven and we're to be strangers and exiles in any land that we live, no matter which country it is. So perhaps the question isn't, are we living in exile? Perhaps the better question is, how should we as the people of God live as exiles or live while in exile? See, this is the very question that the Old Testament book of Daniel answers. So today we're kicking off a six-week study through the first half of the Old Testament book of Daniel uh, with a sermon series that we're calling Unshaken. 
Now, over the next six weeks, we're going to learn uh, what it looks like to live godly lives in an increasingly godless age. So remember, anytime we jump into a book of the Bible, essentially we're parachuting down um, into the middle of, of God's big story. So a little bit of background um, into what's, uh, what's happened uh, prior to studying Daniel. Now, if you remember, uh, God leads the people of Israel uh, out to the promised land, and this all takes place around 1450 BC. A few hundred years go by, they're in the promised land for a few hundred years, all the people of Israel see the surrounding nations with kings, and they uh, want to move away from their theocracy, they they want a king, Uh, so God says, all right, whatever you guys want, you can have at it, and that period then of the kings begins around 1100 BC. So the first three kings, you had Saul... You had David, and then you had Solomon. Now, under these three kings, the 12 tribes of Israel were more or less united. But then, after uh, the third king, after Solomon, a civil war breaks out in Israel, and the land gets divided. So what ended up happening was you had the northern kingdom of Israel, where there were 10 tribes, and then you had the southern kingdom of Judah, where there were two tribes, and in the southern kingdom of Judah is where the city of Jerusalem was. So Israel lasted until, the northern kingdom of Israel lasted until about 740 BC. That's when the Assyrians came in and and started conquering Israel. And then the southern kingdom of Judah lasted until about 605 BC. 605 BC was the year that Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in and started conquering uh, um, uh, Judah and Jerusalem. And that brings us now to the period of Daniel. This all takes place starting in 605 BC. So we're going to dive into the book of Daniel starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And along the way in this chapter, we're going to learn about some of the essentials for living as exiles. So let's jump in. Daniel 1, 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, um, it was a a huge uh, ancient empire. They were powerful, and they were set on expanding their dominance throughout um, the, the Near East. And um, in 605 BC, which is the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, reaches Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Judah, and he starts destroying it, and Jehoiakim has no other option than to surrender to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So you get to verse 1, and you, you see what, what we'll call secular history, right? Just a statement of the historical facts of what happened. But now look at verse 2, how verse 2 captures this event. Verse 2 says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So did you catch that little phrase? Verse 2 starts with, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. So if verse 1 showed us the secular history, right, that man is active in history, it says Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But now in verse 2, it gives us not uh, secular history, but it gives us the viewpoint of biblical theology, right, that God is also active in the same historical events. It says the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. You have to understand these two perspectives are woven together throughout the entire book of Daniel, and it's held in tension, right, that you have the free actions of humans and you have the sovereign guidance of God. They're not in contradiction to one another, even though it's hard to to, to make logical sense within our minds. Now, why does God allow this? Why does he give 
Jehoiakim to, to, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar? Wasn't he supposed to protect his people? Well, again, context is important. See, for more than 200 years, God has been warning Israel to repent of their sins and, and to repent of their wicked lifestyles. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet warning the kings and the people that their idolatry, their uh, immorality, and their injustice toward the needy was going to lead to the nation's ruin. But no matter how much compassion God showed them, no matter how many appeals he made to them, the people ignored God and they mocked every single one of his prophets. So the day finally arrived when God's justice had to be executed and he used Nebuchadnezzar as the one to carry it out. Now, of course, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that he was simply an instrument in the hands of the one true sovereign God, right? He wasn't the supreme one, though he thought he was. No human rulers are supreme. Only God is supreme. Nebuchadnezzar and his empire could only uh, go up to the limits of what God had established. Ne never beyond that. Even in the destruction of Jerusalem, city of Zion, city of David, God didn't for one second take his hand off the rudder that was guiding the history of his children. In fact, if the book of Daniel can be summarized in three words, you could summarize it with these three words. God is sovereign. So we're going to see this theme time and time again throughout the book of Daniel. God is in control of individual people and God is in control of even entire empires, all nations, all kings. God is in control. So from this, we get our first essential for living as exiles. Here it is. Be sure to see your sufferings through the lens of God's sovereignty. Be sure to see your sufferings through the lens of God's sovereignty. See, as children of God, as followers of Christ, when we find ourselves in the worst situations, we can find comfort in knowing that God hasn't abandoned us. When everything seems lost, when, when life seems like it's not worth living, we can know that even then God is still working out his purposes toward uh, his glorious end and for our good. See, Daniel was a Jewish exile. He was a literal exile who served in some of the most powerful ancient kingdoms. Yet behind the rise and fall of all of these mighty empires, behind the, the ever-changing power structures of the world that he was in, Daniel knew that God was the one in charge. He knew it and he knew it well. He's in charge of history. God's in charge of nations. He's in charge of kings. He's in charge of leaders. He's in charge of everything and everyone, including those in charge. You could say God's in charge of who's in charge. See, whether or not anyone acknowledges it, people live and leaders rule at God's discretion alone. He's the one who orchestrates history according to his good purposes, which means he's the one who orchestrates your history, your story according to his good purposes. God is the sovereign, all-powerful father of grace who gives you courage against those who want to oppose you. He's the one who provides you hope in your greatest moments of despair. He's the one who grants you perseverance in all of your trials. You worship and serve a sovereign God who's never caught by surprise. No matter what your circumstances might be, you can always say with confidence, the Lord God Almighty reigns. So be sure to see your sufferings through the lens of God's sovereignty. Daniel viewed his exile through this lens and it gave him courage. 
Courage to withstand the bad, the the sad, and all the difficult things that came his way. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So here now we get a glimpse into just how savvy Nebuchadnezzar was as a ruler, as a king. See, he invaded Jerusalem. He deported a bunch of people back to Babylon. Uh, It's estimated that about 10,000 people uh, came with this first uh, deportation from uh, Judah to to Babylon. So these people that he deported included army commanders, politicians, priests, skilled craftsmen, and business leaders. Now, doing this enabled him to add the best and brightest of Israel to his own administration, to his own cabinet of advisors. And it served as a reminder to Israel that they are now subject to Babylon and also would discourage any sort of rebellion uh, that might happen back in the land of Judah if they know, well, we can't, we're not going to start a rebellion here because then they're going to kill the 10,000 that are in Babylon. So it was with this group of 10,000 that Daniel and his three friends were carried into exile. Now, Daniel's only a teenager at this time. He's about 16 years old. And what we learn from verses three and four is that Nebuchadnezzar wants to mold the most promising of the youths of Israel into full-fledged Babylonian citizens. These young men had to meet three qualifications. They had to be strong and healthy without any kind of um, physical impairment. They had to be handsome. There goes my chance. And they had to be intelligent and quick to learn. So the king, you have to understand, he wants to indoctrinate these Jewish, te- these, uh, Jewish teenagers in the language and literature of the Babylonians. He wants to conform these uh, citizens of God's kingdom to, to serve as citizens of his own kingdom. And he wants them to start living and thinking and acting and eating like Babylonians. In short, he wants to brainwash them by polluting the purity of their dedication to God. To the point that he even wants them to eat and drink like Babylonians. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So this uh, retraining program was three years long. During these three years, these Hebrew teenagers were to be assimilated to the point that uh, they'd be cut off from everything they knew, they'd be cut off from their past and they'd be cut off from their God. The Babylonians wanted to change their way of thinking by educating them in Babylonian academics. They wanted to change their way of living by forcing them to eat the same food from the king's table. And it was probably uh, the best of food that, the, uh, that Babylon offered and the best of wine that Babylon offered. Now, as if this wasn't enough, they even wanted to change their way of worship, their, their identity, um, their names, Look at verse six. It says, among these, among these who went into the exile were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So Daniel had, and his three friends had beautiful uh, Hebrew names given to them by their parents. Names that testified uh, of the one true God, right? So Daniel uh, means uh, God is my judge, 
Then you have Hananiah. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Then you have Mishael. Mishael means who is what God is. And then there's Azariah. And that means, uh, Azariah's name means Yahweh has helped. So in an attempt, though, to remind these four godly teens that they're no longer in service to the God of Israel, but they're now supposed to be in service to uh, the pagan gods of Babylon, they changed their names. Look at verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So all of the names change. So Daniel's name is now Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar means may Bel protect his life. Now, Bel is uh, the the Babylonian term for for Lord. Um, So here it's uh, referring to the chief Babylonian god uh, uh, by the name of Marduk. And then Shadrach um, literally means the command of Aku. Um, Aku was uh, the moon god. And then you had Meshach, and that means uh, who is what Aku is. And then there's Abednego, and that means servant of Nebo. Nebo was the Babylonian god of wisdom and agriculture. So these four Jewish teenagers were facing immense pressures. Nebuchadnezzar was trying desperately to pollute their purity. He isolated them from their friends and family and everything familiar to them by uh, bringing them uh, into exile in Babylon. He indoctrinated them in in the language and the learning and the living of Babylonian culture. He wanted them to compromise their convictions regarding food and drink. And he wanted to confuse them by changing their names, their identity. So these, these pressures that these young men faced, though, are really not that different from the pressures that Christians today face even in our very own culture. See, which brings us to our second essential of living as exiles. Here's the second one. Be prepared for the pressures to pollute the purity of your dedication to God. We need to be prepared for the pressures that are going to come, that are going to want to pollute the purity of our dedication to God. See, as people who are exiles in this world, we need to be on guard and prepared for the temptations that are going to come our way to try to compromise those biblical convictions that we have. Now, sure, we're not going to be forced to live as literal exiles in a foreign land as, as Daniel and his friends, but you and I do face pressures to change our way of thinking, right? There's always pressures to change uh, our way of thinking, what we think about Jesus being the only way to heaven, what we think about the origins of the universe, what we think about marriage, what we think about abortion, what we think about educating our children, what we think about objective morals and values and standards, Not only that, but there's also pressures on us to change our way of living, right? The world wants us to conform to their standards and their values. They want us to adopt their selfish and self-centered motivations and ways. They want us to champion their promiscuous sexuality. So they want us to change our way of thinking, our way of living, and even across the globe, especially a Christian's way of, of worship, See, we take for, grant, for granted some of our uh, religious freedoms that we get to enjoy here in America, but we're, we're quite an anomaly when it comes to having religious freedom. Um, for example, there are 52 countries around the world where the Bible is illegal or severely restricted. Um, in North Korea alone, there's 70,000 Christians who are spending a lifetime in prison Um, or a lifetime um, of forced labor in a labor camp. In Afghanistan, if they find out you're a Christian, you're dead. 
And then there are other countries who are trying to make it hate speech when a preacher preaches something from the Bible that swims against the current of that culture. And who knows how much longer we're going to actually be able to enjoy these kinds of religious freedoms here in our very own country. See, we need to be prepared for all of the external pressures that will try to squeeze us and, and force us into the mold of the world. We need to take seriously the New Testament exhortation that says to us, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We need to take seriously the command that tells us do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. We must, we must be prepared for the pressures that come our way to pollute the purity of our dedication to God. The pressures we face really are very similar to the uh, pressures that Daniel and his three friends faced. They're just packaged differently. So how does Daniel respond to all of these pressures? Well, starting in verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. See, as a teenage prisoner of war and as an exile, Daniel had very little control over his situation and really didn't make a big fuss about many things. Being taken to Babylon was outside of his control. Having to master the Babylonian language was outside of his control. Having to study in the University of Babylon and get amazing grades, that was outside of his control. Even having his name changed to reflect Babylonian deities was outside of his control. He never made a fuss about any of that. But when it comes to consuming the royal food and wine, he puts his foot down there. He resists. We're told that Daniel resolved not to defile himself, not to to make himself unclean or, 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 or spiritually dirty. So what is it, though, about this food and drink that Daniel takes so seriously? Well, for one, it's likely that the king's food wasn't kosher. Right? It might have included uh, pork, might have included other forbidden meats. Um, and remember, before Christ, the people of God had to follow certain food protocols. And then Christ came, did away with all those food uh, protocols, and made the claim that all food is now clean. But prior to that, they had to follow the, the, the law. So, And also, the other thing is that it was very typical in Babylon that uh, for the food that was served, that it was first offered as a sacrifice um, to the idols, to the Babylonian um, gods. So um, Daniel would not, and his friends, they wouldn't partake of any of that food or drink because partaking of that uh, meant that it was an indirect act of, of worshiping the Babylonian deities. And that's where he draws the line. So by refusing this, he's taking a stand against the Babylonian gods and he's taking a stand for the God of Israel. But this is dangerous for him. He can be executed because of this. And yet we're reminded again that God is in control. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. See, God was active in Daniel's history and orchestrated all of it so Daniel would find favor with this palace master. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. 
For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Now, though the palace master took a liking to Daniel, he was clearly very afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. He knew that to disobey Nebuchadnezzar's order was to flirt with decapitation. So look at the wise way Daniel handles this, starting in verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel bypasses this uh, fearful palace master and instead he proposes a plan to one of the lower officials. He basically says, listen, we're here for three years. Just give me 10 days, 10 days. We're just gonna eat vegetables and we're gonna have this vegetable and water only diet and then you compare us to the others after 10 days and then we'll take it from there. Now, I really love how, how Daniel deals so, so tactfully with this pressure on him to compromise his purity. And this brings us into our third essential for living as exiles. And that's this, be committed to living wisely in the world without conforming to the world. Be committed to live wisely in the world without conforming to the world. See, sometimes it can be a challenge to know um, those things that we should take a stand for, um, when we should take a stand for our convictions, and, and how we should even go about taking that stand. Um, but the kind of tact that we see Daniel displaying here, that required wisdom, that required discernment. Right? He stood his ground, but he did so with grace and humility. He wasn't overbearing, he wasn't obnoxious, he wasn't stubborn, he wasn't rude. He wasn't arrogant about any of it. He didn't threaten anybody. He didn't try to stage a protest. He was gentle. He was kind, and he wisely proposed a win-win solution. And I think we'd benefit greatly if we always stood by our convictions the same way that Daniel did with such grace and wisdom. And I think this is especially timely for our day, right? When we're living through um, a seismic cultural shift away from the values that we hold dear, a shift where the church is no longer in the center of society, but now operates on the fringes of society. We get angry, right? Because we mourn the loss of what we once had. We get fearful, wondering how far down our society is actually going to slide. And we become uh, chronic complainers, bemoaning the fact that we no longer have a seat at the cultural table or the political table. And we end up spending more time and energy calling out the darkness, getting mad at how dark the darkness is actually getting, while forgetting that God is calling us to be lights in the darkness, to shine forth his beauty and his grace. I love the way one church planter articulated this reality. In his book, Evangelism as Exiles, Elliot Clark puts it this way. He says this, So often now, American evangelicals are despondent and hopeless, specifically in light of our fading cultural power and social influence. The social pressures crashing against Christians and Christianity are on the rise and aren't likely to recede for some time. Our exile and persecution doesn't seem any longer to be a question of if or even when, but how far. How far will we slide? How much will we lose? How long will it last? And while those are all reasonable questions, the more pressing and biblical question is this. 
How will the church respond? When you're a stranger, when you're on the outside looking in, you think what you're experiencing is abnormal, that you yourself are strange. But one of the essential lessons of scripture is that this suffering and social exclusion is actually the most normal thing in all the world. It was normal for Jesus. It's common for our brothers and sisters around the world today. It has even been the norm for our African-American brothers and sisters in the United States for centuries. So as you walk, and then he closes with this, he says, so as you walk the lonely dirt road into a shameful exile, away from what you've known in a sheltered American past, you are not alone. You're being included into God's global family. You're joining Christ, bearing the shame and reproach he bore. But insofar as you share in his sufferings, you'll also partake in his glory. This is the solid basis of our living hope. Church, we need to remember that we are exiles living in a foreign land. This world is not our home. But we have to remember that God has called us to be a light in the world, that he's called us to be a blessing to the world as long as he keeps us in the world. So we need to ask God to give us his wisdom. We need to ask him for everything that we need to be able to live wisely in the world, balancing that without compromising. And guess what? When we're committed to living like this, when you're committed to living like this, God is going to honor that. That's exactly what he did for Daniel and his friends. Verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. See, God honored their faithfulness to him. After this 10-day trial run, somehow Daniel and his friends looked healthier and looked like they gained a little more than their meat, the other meat-eating captives. Now, understand this isn't a testament uh, to the benefits of a vegetarian diet, however beneficial those might be. This is a testament to the faithfulness of God and his sovereign hand guiding his children and the history of, his, of the nation. Verse 16. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So for three years, they continue their uh, vegetable and water-only diet. And as a result, whenever others, whenever others see Daniel and his friends, they'll know that their physical appearance was not due um, to the Babylonian food, the food from Nebuchadnezzar's table, but that it was due to the blessing of their God. So God honored their faithfulness to him by blessing them uh, physically. But that's not all, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions And dreams. So not only did God bless them physically, he blesses them mentally. He blesses them intellectually. God gave them knowledge. He gave them understanding in all kinds of literature. And he gave them wisdom. And then to Daniel, he gave a special uh, spiritual gift. He gives Daniel insight into dreams and visions. And this gift becomes quite important as we're going to see in the weeks to come. Verse 18. At the end of the time... When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. 
See, God's blessing of these four men extends even to uh, the social and, and the vocational. After their three years of training, Nebuchadnezzar himself examines all the young guys, sees Daniel and his friends, and we're told that he finds Daniel and his friends far superior to any of the other graduates. So the king stations them in his court to serve as his advisors. Verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar is pleased with the work of Daniel and his three companions. They're superior even to the experienced wise men in Babylon. Now, of course, the king probably assumed that um, their uh, superiority, that their, um, that their success was the result of his incredible training, but Daniel and his friends knew it was a result of God. We know it was because of God. And this is where we get our fourth essential for living as exiles. Our fourth essential is this. Be hopeful that God will honor your faithfulness to him. See, God honored the faithfulness of these four men by blessing them physically, um, intellectually, spiritually, socially, and vocationally. Now, that's not to say that God blesses everybody the same way. That's not to say that he's going to bless you that same exact way. But whether on this earth or in eternity, he will honor our faithfulness to him. Hebrews 11 tells us that God rewards those who seek him. So tangible blessings aside, our greatest reward comes from possessing the very grace of God himself. As one commentator put it, he said, we are meant to see Daniel's life not as a guarantee of uninterrupted glee, but as a token of the irrepressible grace of God. See, through Daniel's life, God shows us that his divine love is real, that his covenant with us is unending, and that his promises are more certain than anything the world can possibly offer. Even when we fail to live as Daniel did in this account, God preserves his love for us. He won't turn his back on us. He won't walk away from us. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. So understand that whatever the world offers is nothing compared to the immensity of the beauty of the plan that God has for our souls. And though the rewards of holiness might only be tasted in the present, we get to feast upon them in eternity. We can be hopeful that God will honor our faithfulness to him. And then the closing verse of chapter one of Daniel says this, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So King Cyrus is, uh, well, he, he becomes the king of Persia. Persia is modern day Iran. Um, and he ends up conquering Babylon many years later. So God keeps Daniel in this position of leadership uh, well beyond Nebuchadnezzar. He serves in, in a position of leadership through different um, empires and kings for about 70 years. So he outlasts the Babylonian empire and he even outlasts most of the Babylonian kings. And then as the story of Daniel unfolds, in the weeks to come, we'll see that Daniel's obedience to God during these early years of his life, during these teenage years, it was used by God to prepare Daniel and, and the friends for even greater trials that were going to follow. So here's our fifth essential that we learn for living as exiles. Number five, be assured that God uses present trials to prepare you for his future purposes. 
be assured that God uses your present trials to prepare you for his future purposes. See, starting with this first chapter, the book of Daniel goes from one adventure to the next and to the next. Daniel's going to face other wicked kings. He's going to have nightmare visions. His friends will get thrown into a fiery furnace. He's going to get tossed into a den of lions. Every trial that Daniel and his godly friends come up against ends up leading uh, to newer and, and even greater challenges, but even greater effectiveness for God's kingdom. See, our tendency when we're in trying circumstances, when we're in difficult circumstances, is to question God. We wonder if God has abandoned us. But the testimony of Israel, the testimony of Daniel here, shows us that God is never abandoning us. Oftentimes, he's preparing us for what's to come. See, in the hands of God, none of our trials are meaningless. None of them are pointless. None of them are purposeless. He's always stretching us. He's always molding us. He's always strengthening us. And he promises, as we said a bunch of times when we studied through the life of Joseph, God promises to work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So be confident in the fact that God will use whatever it is that you're going through right now to prepare you for his future purposes. So here's the bottom line. Here's the summary statement of the entire chapter. We can live with undefiled courage because our God is always in control. See, Daniel chapter chapter one teaches us this truth, that we can live with undefiled courage because our God is always in control. He won't waste any of our waiting. He won't waste any of our tears. He won't waste any of our sufferings and all of our temporary trials, all of our temporary afflictions. He will not waste any of that. He is in control. So when the world wants to pressure you to compromise your convictions, to compromise your values, your standards, your biblical principles, when they want to pressure us to pollute our purity, we need to remember that we live as citizens of God's kingdom. And he's the God who calls all the shots. Even as we refuse to conform to this world, we need to be reminded that God has placed us in the world to serve him and to point others to him. But that demands grace, that demands wisdom, and those are things that only God himself can provide to us. So God's plan for us is not to be passive in this world, but to bless the world with his grace and with his goodness. So instead of smirking at the misery of the immoral culture around us, We should be weeping. Instead of being um, cynical, indifferent, or uninvolved, we should go into the world making disciples of all nations. We're to be salt and we're to be light. The salt of the earth doesn't sit there and mock rotting meat. It saves it. It seasons it. And the light of the world doesn't just withdraw from uh, the godless darkness. It, it labors to illuminate the world with the good news of Christ's death, his life, his burial, his resurrection. Amen. So instead of, instead of us whining about the triumphs of evil, instead of being hardened with anger, instead of being a bitter and, and resentful, hearkening back to the days of old, back to better days, God desires that we pattern our lives, not for nostalgia of the past, but for the hope of the future. The hope that comes from knowing that Jesus will one day return to usher in his kingdom and to reverse the wreckage of the curse of sin and death. But until that most joyous day comes, let's remember that we are foreigners 
and exiles. And we are empowered by Christ Jesus to live with undefiled, undiluted, unadulterated courage. After all, King Jesus is the one in charge. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are in charge. Lord, so often the um, trials of life, our our circumstances, um, difficult relationships, illnesses, financial problems, worries with the future, all of these things have a tendency to distract us from you, to distract us from what's really important. Lord, I pray that even as we go about this week, that you would remind us who we are, that we are much loved sons and daughters of the Most High God, Lord, and that you would remind us that we, we are exiles. It doesn't matter how far our country turns away from you, it doesn't change who we are. We are exiles and you've given us uh, a purpose, you've given us a mission to reach those who are far from you with the gospel of Jesus and we thank you, Jesus, for who you are and for what you've done on our behalf. Thank you for providing us the salvation that we could never get access to other than by receiving it freely from you who paid for it. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would empower us to live courageously in this dark world, Lord, but not obnoxiously, not rudely or arrogantly, Lord, but with gentleness, with kindness, so that when people see us, they would experience and see the grace and love of Jesus who wants to save them. Lord, King Jesus, you are the king of all the nations. And we look forward to that day when people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language will gather around the throne, worshiping you. Lord, and until that day comes, strengthen us to live this life well, pointing others to you, living courageously for you, and living only to please you. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. All God's children said, 